KRCL, Salt Lake City. I am Nick Burns. This is Radioactive. We are always your show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives everywhere. And we are here on your community connection, KRCL 90.9 FM, every weeknight. And of course, that means it's 6 p.m. Gosh, tonight on the show, we are coming to you from the studio, of course, but we've got a lot going on for a great hour. We're going to talk about water judges. That's something the state of Colorado does, and we're moving towards that here um, in Utah. Water judges, in other words, trained judicial trained folks in the judiciary who know water law. Again, water law is very different than here, than back east. But uh, Salt Lake Tribune reporter Sage Miller will be joining us to talk about water judges here in Utah. Also, gosh, it's now way above the lake, so it's hard to think of the spiral jetty as something in the lake anymore. But man, the spiral jetty very much reflects climate change. So Laura joins Laura Jones, excuse me. She's going to share her conversation with the Tribune's Palak Jaswal on the subject of the spiral jetty and how it is emerging as a very real symbol of climate change. Later on the show, and I'm really looking forward to this, the Hart Theater Company has a new production of The Wild Party. That opens in July. This is a musical that dates from the 90s and based on an original poem written just before the crash in the 1920s. Takes on some dark themes, but is also very surprisingly modern with some gay characters. Touches on trauma and how people cope with trauma. Pretty interesting stuff. We've got the director, we've got a couple of the actors, and also the people behind the Heart Theater Company, all gonna join us later on the show. But first, man, my boss, radioactive executive producer, Laura Jones. <laughs> hey, Nick Burns. How so, are you? You know, I, one more day to come of Supreme Court rulings dropping oh. West Virginia and the EPA case. I'm kind of nervous given how this court has ruled and uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, also the Miranda case, tribes today. Got stiffed, yes. So uh, how are you feeling about that? You've got a, a longer view of mm. history than I have. Let's put it that way. Well, I think the Supreme Court swings right and left, just like Congress, but with a great lag. I mean, I came of age during the last remnants of the very liberal FDR era court, but the states and the government had moved towards Eisenhower and eventually towards Reagan, but yet the court was still somewhat leftist. So here now we've got this incredibly hyper and even more hyper, I think, right-wing court. But honestly, if you look at 200 and some years of US history, the Supreme Court, bunch of white guys, it's always been pretty conservative, yeah. always been pretty favorable towards the rich and powerful. I don't have a good answer. It is very depressing to have this right in your face. It's like the jackboot just kicks you in the ass and nobody cares anymore. Um, and again, all the counter all the counter talk, it's like, oh, vote, vote, vote. And it's like, well, I, I've been voting Democratic and Green a long time, <laughs> and I'm not seeing a whole lot of yeah. action. So, but I you got to show up because the people who show oh. up at the polls are the ones who choose. Yes, and next. Lee won the primary yesterday. Mm, and was that was that from all the people who switched, you know, from the Democrat to the Republicans? And well, then there you was vote in theory for the a worst Republican. <laughs> well, it does set up an interesting contest in the general election between Mike Lee and now the unaffiliated. Uh, candidate Evan McMullen. Yeah. What do you think? How do you think that's going to play out? I don't know how many Democrats will move over to that side. If if you if you look at his policies, he's 
still a fairly conservative right-wing guy. Mm. He's not a nutcase, I would say, or a crazy <laughs> like Mike Lee can be. Okay, tell us how you really feel. Yeah, well, I, you know, the uh, voters voters in Utah will be choosing between two right-leaning candidates. Yeah. Rather right, right-leaning mm. or seriously right-leaning. One is just a lot crazier than the other, and one is oh. really untested. Well, and down in Utah County, the Utah County oh. uh, District Attorney did not make it out of the primary. And they've got that entire satanic sex thing going on behind the scenes. That was that a was, whole oh. kind of out-of-left-field uh, thing that came up at the last minute in that election. Oh. But, folks, I think there's still some races waiting to hear being called. And, of course, you can check with your county clerk for election results. And around the country, like Colorado and a few other states, some of the total like election deniers, some of the people who think Tina Trump— Peters in Colorado right, are, did not make right. it out of so primary. So around the country, <clears throat> and I guess we are looking for optimism outside perhaps some of the races here in Utah, but a lot of the really crazies lost around mm. the country— the election deniers, which is that is something. A That's a good thing. So, folks, if you yeah. uh, didn't make it to the polls, if you didn't get registered, that doesn't mean you can't vote in the general. So, uh, get ready. The first Tuesday in November, uh, you can go to vote.utah.gov to check your registration, to update your registration, to get registered, and uh, find out more details about the next uh, election, which is the general first Tuesday in November. Looking at some other rallies and resources to point to you folks let's see tomorrow i want to remind you this is i think the final juneteenth in the state event uh uh nick and it's the juneteenth beloved community vigil at six o'clock international peace gardens here on salt lake city's west side it's 1160 south dalton avenue it's part of jordan park ninth west 10th south area that's where you're going to find it and go check it out. And then Saturday, July 9th. I skipped right over the 4th of July, didn't I? Yeah, you Apparently can't. I'm supposed to wear black <laughs> and uh, not celebrate my independence anymore. So, oh. Because my body You, and, you and all the no women. Longer. There you go. Oh. What are you going to do for the 4th of July? Oh, well, I'm not doing a barbecue or something like that. I don't yeah. know what I'll do. I think I would like to spend some time outdoors and maybe, you mm-hmm. know, look for fireflies and see a couple beavers and maybe watch yeah. some birds fly overhead and just keep it peaceful. That's Excellent. And I have an idea for you folks for getting outside. Um, I'm on the email list for the Utah Department of Natural Resources and Wildlife Resources. And the ospreys are uh, coming into prime viewing time. It's a great time for road trips if that's something you're into and wildlife viewing experience. You can see ospreys in the air on top of their huge nests at a free Utah Division of Wildlife Resources event happening Saturday, July 16th. And I will put all of the details in the show notes, folks. It's a it's a road trip, Nick. It's um, down, you, I think you can meet up at the Flaming Gorge Dam down in Dutch John. There's a visitor wow. center there. Uh, it's from nine to noon on Saturday, July 16th. They're gonna have spotting scopes available. And speaking of scopes, telescopes, uh, Skywatcher Leo T is working on a star party for August. Oh, so stay cool. tuned for details on that. All right, so what I wanted to start doing on Wednesdays during rallies and resources was doing an update on the Great Salt Lake Collaborative all these organizations shining a light on what is happening with the Great Salt Lake before it's too late. You can read all of our stories at greatsaltlakenews.org. And so uh, this falls into that category next. Pollock J. Swall is a reporter at the Salt Lake Tribune, and her piece ran over the weekend in the Tribune. Beautiful photographs, and there's a video online, too, with this, this digital post 
I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out. But uh, she wanted to explore the Great Salt Lake and the through the the lens of the spiral jetty. So let's share that conversation, shall we? Thanks. All right, here we go. I was very new to the spiral jetty. Um, I knew about it vaguely, as I feel like most Utahns do know about it. Um, that it was an artwork, that it was near the Great Salt Lake, but I didn't know a lot about it. Um, and I've lived in Utah my entire life. So there was definitely an intrigue into getting to know what is the mystery of the spiral jetty. Well, as you reported in Sunday's uh, weekend edition of the Salt Lake Tribune, it's a 1500 foot rock formation. Robert Smithson, the late Robert Smithson as the artist put it up in 1970 as an artistic water gauge of the Great Salt Lake, but you found it means different things to different people. Yeah, absolutely. So for this piece, I got to talk to people who are in the art world, people who are in the science world. And the really interesting thing about the spiral jetty is it's really this um, stopping point between art and science. You know, um, when Smithson first created it, it was fully submerged under the water of the Great Salt Lake. And now if you go visit the Great Salt Lake, it is much, much farther from the spiral jetty, which kind of looks like this barren thing compared to what it originally was. Yeah, Jamie Butler of the Great Salt Lake Institute says she used to be able to throw a rock from uh, where she got out of her car to the jetty, but not now, right? Yes. And um, Bonnie Baxter from the Great Salt Lake Institute also, she told me a story where the first time she ever visited the lake, um, she was able to go over the spiral jetty in a canoe with some of her students and collect water samples. Um, you know, she was told beforehand, don't even try to look for the jetty. It's hidden. Um, it's kind of like this mystery. And now it's completely different. And that was 24 years ago, as you note in your article for Bonnie Baxter, mm -hmm. um, trying to get the same water sample, or at least a water sample from the same area is more and more difficult as the lake continues to shrink. So you also spoke with Hickmet Lowe, who I believe is at Westminster, you write in your article, wrote a really definitive book a couple of years back on the spiral jetty and has a few uh, interesting perspectives on it. Um, and I'm just kind of curious what your take was on her take. Yeah, so uh, she now teaches, if I remember correctly, actually at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, but she was at Westminster for a really long time. Um, and like you mentioned, she did have some really interesting takes. Um, one of them was that Smithson knowingly made the spiral jetty at the site um, he made it at because of the dynamic environment that was around it. So he knew that the salt crystals would kind of form and dissipate, you know, the colors would change, the water would rise and fall. So in Hickman Lowe's um, kind of opinion, 50 years ago, he wasn't thinking, here's what people are going to think about my work um, in relation to climate change. And so I thought that was a really interesting way to think about it. Um, this artist was just making art, right? And he was aware that it was land art and that land changes over time but I don't think he would have ever predicted just how crucial the spiral jetty would be to kind of signaling um to the change that the Great Salt Lake is going through yeah and you note in your article Smith Smithson's own essay some void thoughts on museums he writes that museums are tombs and you say implying that artwork went to museums to die and here is the spiral jetty as 
a symbol uh, of what is happening to the lake as it continues to recede, as it continues to shrink. Definitely. So Palak, have you been to the spiral jetty yourself? And if not, when can we go? You know, I have not been to the spiral jetty myself, but we should all plan a day trip together just to go out there. And I think Utahns in general should strive to go out and visit it if they had the opportunity because words can do so much, but actually seeing something in person, that's a completely different experience. And that's Pollock J. Swall, Salt Lake Tribune reporter. And check tonight's show notes for a link to her story on the Spiral Jetty. If you're looking for a tour of the Spiral Jetty, the great Salt Lake Collaborative, Nick Burns, is working with the Utah Museum of Fine Arts to lead a tour on October 1st from noon to 3 p.m. And I'll put a link in the show notes for people to sign up about that as well. I'm trying to think. I maybe I think I went maybe uh, in, in junior high on a, a, field, a summer oh, field cool. trip or something like that. But uh, I really can't recall it, so it's time for me to go check it out, too. And, and a few folks mm-hmm. have been really lucky if you're on a flight, if you're lucky enough to be on a flight that goes north out yeah. of the airport. Sometimes you can see it from the plane, but yeah. n- now it's <clears throat> high and dry. There you go. And now for another edition of Lake Effect, the Great Salt Lake News Podcast. My name is Bonnie Baxter. I am a professor of biology at Westminster College, and I'm the director of Great Salt Lake Institute. I've worked on a variety of questions, but most of them involving the microbial life, the the foundation of the Great Salt Lake ecosystem. One of the reasons the lake is pink in the North Arm is these special pigments that the microbes that live there have that are carotenoids named after carrots because carrots also have them. And whenever UV light hits these microbes, these pigments sort of absorb all the free oxygen radicals that could damage their cells. We started Great Salt Lake Institute in order to help support research and education on the lake. And I come from a science background, but I have to tell you some of the most interesting times at the lake have been with artists. We just wrote a chapter on our work for a book. And one of the things we thought about was how art is subservient to science and they should be there on equal fronts. So science can figure out what's going on, but art can reach people. And I think that the two really need to work together to solve problems. We were really looking to engage art students and science students at Great Salt Lake in ways that were wholly equal. Like we had dancers go do research at the tar seeps, and then those dancers came up with this incredibly emotional dance about the pelicans getting stuck in the seeps while our biology students were exploring trail camera photographs of the pelicans actually getting stuck and trying to understand that process. The lake calls scientists, it calls artists, it calls poets, and it's just a very special place. This is Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Stay salty, Utah. I love that podcast. (laughs) And folks are looking for your stories, so go to greatsaltlakenews.org and share your story of the Great Salt Lake, Nick. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The lake is really suffering, and a whole bunch of people are coming together to step up to help. And as always, this conversation was aired through the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solutions journalism initiative that partners news, education, 
and media organizations, including all of us here at KRCL, to help inform people about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done to make a difference before it's too late. Read all of our stories. You can check them all out, greatsaltlakenews.org. And our next guest, also a Salt Lake Tribune reporter and something that just hit the streets today, I believe. So, Sage Miller, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. I always love coming on. Oh, again, you know, being a print reporter, this is something that's a bit different in your world, right? Being on TV, being on the radio. A generation ago, you kind of just sat and typed, and now it's like a whole different a whole different line of work, so I, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Ironically, I was in broadcast first and then switched to print. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Um, it's like the backwards way of it, oh. but yeah. Either way, great modes, also both difficult, so. Yeah, it's, well, it's just it's just so different to, it's different, anyway. Yeah. We could have a whole separate show about that, but you did have this amazing piece in the Salt Lake Tribune today, Water Judges, and, you know, when you first think of that, you think of, you know, <laughs> The, the water ballet or, or whatever. But no, these are actually judges who are more knowledgeable about water law than perhaps, I want to say, regular judges. Yeah, so they're just district court judges that are already appointed judges that essentially volunteer themselves to take on water cases and quote-unquote become a water lawyer. So... Big deal, big deal for people in the water realm and specifically all of the disputes. And as, you know, water becomes increasingly scarce in the Western United States and as Utah continues to grapple with the mega drought, the the importance of water judges and having knowledgeable rulings against water disputes is going to become significantly more critical. Well, Utah Rivers, you know, Zach from Utah Rivers, a big fan of the show and been on many times. When it comes to these water judges, who's... Who supports and who's nervous? Yeah, so they had a public commenting period. So the Judicial Council essentially proposed this rule to appoint water judges. And they had a public comment period and overall raging positive reviews from both the water, like Utah's water community, including the Utah Water Task Force, Utah Water Lawyers, the state engineer. They had minor tweaks on it, but overall they were really excited to have more knowledgeable judges to present their water disputes to instead of having uh, anybody from a district court judge become and stand in front and trying to figure out all of the ins and outs, the complexities of how Utah water law works. Right. And just as a reminder to folks, water law here in the Western United States is not the same as it is back east, not the same as it was or is in England from back in the day, that sort of natural law stuff. That's not how we do it out here in the West. Not at all. We can drink the whiskey, but we fight over the water. Absolutely. Yes, is, the, is the joke. That's a great way to put it. Oh. So, and I know you, I know you've, we have some clips with you talking to folks from this story that was published today. And I I guess I would just throw to you, Sage, you want to set one of these up and we'll jump into this? Yeah. So the very first one is from a a Utah water lawyer that's been practicing for 25 years, Scott Martin. And he kind of explains the importance of having water judges or having knowledgeable people to present cases in front of, especially as the landscape of Utah and our water supply has changed over the years. There's so many, so many competing demands on uh, on a very, very limited resource. You know, we are in a day where our landscape now looks very, very different than what it did one generation ago, five generations ago, or when Brigham Young first came into the Salt Lake Valley and created the very first water right. That's how far back things go. 
But, you know, what you have right now is you have so much demand, you know, and you look, if you look at the population growth, I mean, we shudder to think, you know, the amount of demand on this resource. Also, what you're getting is you're just getting hyper levels of urbanization, agricultural areas. Like I'm driving through Spanish Fork right now. And I mean, it used to be just, you know, fields of alfalfa and and open ditches. Now it's ivory homes. That was Scott Martin, a longtime Utah water lawyer. Sage, sage, competing demands. I mean, that kind of sums it up. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And he also does a really great job of explaining how Utah has more water rights than we actually have water. Oops. So, yeah, yeah, right. So that means that whenever a dispute comes into play, multiple people are affected by it. A lot of entities are affected by it. And Judge Appleby, who is a Utah appeals court judge who helped kind of draft this judicial rule, does explain very well kind of the the intricacies of how much water law includes different entities and their interests to it. And we have this kind of screwy Utah way of you have to use it to use it. Yeah, use right? it or lose it. Yeah. And so no wonder the lake is running dry because we have people just, I wouldn't say needlessly spraying water, but maybe growing what they shouldn't be growing on farms because if they don't use the water, they'll lose it. Yeah, they're just using it because like that's just how Utah water law has existed oh. for a while up until recently when the legislature changed this use it or lose it stipulation ever so slightly. Ever so slightly. So again, I, I guess asking you maybe separate from your reporting, is that enough? Is that anywhere near enough? Or was just that incremental step from the legislature a, <clears throat> I'll use this carefully, a sea change? Yeah, so uh, the Utah's water community that I talked to said it was, they'd made monumental changes during the 2022 legislative session. And it set up the groundwork for a lot more progressive water policy in the future in order to preserve and to continue restoring this res- resource. Because as you know, once you use water, it's not like it's Candy Crush, your five lives come back, <laughs> you know, like it's gone. Like you don't, you don't have it anymore. And so they're really trying to start to grapple with like all of the competing interests that I said and also the priority list of who has access to water rights aka first in time first in right yeah and you have another clip I think talking with that same water lawyer yeah yeah so what the Utah uh, the judicial rule focuses on is primarily two parts of Utah water law it's chapter three and four and chapter three is the general adjudication which Scott Martin does a really great job of explaining why it would cause a, f- a, a it would ruffle some feathers and the job of the general adjudication basically is to weed out all the dead water rights and give greater mm. clarity and security to all of the valid water rights. And so it's kind of a big washing process that everybody statewide is going through. Everybody gets notice, and then they're required to basically file a water user's claim, which is sort of the, is that's kind of, you know, their stated claim. That's kind of their pleading in the general adjudication and that's when the water right holder stands up and raises his or her hand or its hand and said i have this water right and then they fill in uh what the parameters of that water right they believe uh are then it all sort of falls into the lap of the utah state engineer's office they go out and they do basically field evaluations of all these and then they issue what's called a state engineer recommendation also known as the ser and if the water right is a dud if it has not been used, um, then the state engineer recommends that the water right be uh, ruled as uh, forfeited. 
but you know, it's a very valuable real property right, so then there's always a tussle over it. That's Scott Martin, a longtime Utah water attorney, who, Sage, you got to interview for this story that was in the paper today about all the issues around water and having these water judges. Um, and again, it's incredibly complex. Yeah, to say the least. But more important than incredibly complex, there just ain't enough. Yeah, there's just not enough, and they're trying to figure out who exactly has the rights to what water that exists currently. I mean, it Ex seems to me historically that when it comes right down to it, it tends to be the farmers who lose, right? They, you, you sell off your farm and it becomes a subdivision, and then you're not watering alfalfa, you're watering people's green grass. Yeah, seems quite, to be quite frankly, that's kind of the, the issue, especially in a booming population that Scott Martin talks about. And that's primarily part of the reason why they decided to create water judges to begin with, because as as the Utah as Utah's population continues to grow, we're gonna need more water, which means they're gonna try and take irrigation water, drowned out, flooded out in order to put it in water tanks and clean them up so they can then, you know, use the water for the individuals living in these subdivisions. And so that's why Scott Martin talks about, you know, that uh, how he was driving through Spanish Fork and it used to just all be alfalfa fields. And now it's just all ivory homes because it's development, which means it's it's kind of gone downhill um, with uh, with 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 farmland. So we're talking about water judges, but this isn't exactly a water court. It's not a whole separate judicial system for water. It's just we would have judges who would be greater would hold greater expertise in the area of Western water law. Yeah. Okay. And so before we get onto that, I would say that this law is essentially the very first step to creating okay. a water court. And Judge Appleby talks about why it's important to have water judges just as the start, especially when there are so many competing parties. Okay, let's roll that. For example, a general streaming adjudication might involve thousands of citizens whose water rights are potentially affected, as well as the state engineer has an involvement in um, doing the first cut adjudication of those claims. And oftentimes the federal government is involved. Um, so for example, right now, there's pending litigation over the Bear River in Idaho. Mm -hmm. The Bear River runs through three states and ends up coming into Utah and into Great Salt Lake. And so you'll have all the water users along that uh, body of water, but it runs through tribal lands. So they've got an interest. The federal government has an interest. That's Kate Appleby, senior judge with the Utah Court of Appeals, who was involved and assisted, in, assisted rather, in creating this new rule about... Uh, <laughs> I want to say water court, but we're not there yet. We've just got these water judges. So Sage Miller, I, I want to roll into this next clip if you need to set that up where we where where Judge Appleby talks a little bit more about this. Yeah. So that 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 case that she was talking about, the Bear River adjudication, has been going on since nineteen thirty in the nineteen thirties, right? This is a case that has yet to be settled. It involves so many parties. And so that's where the idea of a water court comes in to help kind of streamline this process. And that's something that public commenters on the rule wanted, but didn't quite get. Some of the people who commented on the draft rule, they would like to see a water law court established like Colorado. Um, but assuming the people who do decide policy think that that's a good idea, that's not something that happens overnight. It's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's probably a multi-year process involving discussions with stakeholders and, you know, how would you do it? And 
and that sort of thing. Whereas this is a much more modest proposal to just try to create a mechanism for people to get water cases in front of water law trained judges. And that's Judge Kate Appleby, who is a senior judge with the Utah Court of Appeals, involved in setting up and creating this new rule for water judges. So Sage Miller, a lot of work went into this piece, but it's very much just the beginning of this entire process for what are we going to do with our water and who's going to get it? Yeah, and the appointing the three judges, it's a minimum of three judges that are on a volunteer basis. More can volunteer if they would like. It's kind of the very first step to understanding the demand for these water judges as well. And they said they're going to go back and reevaluate if they want to extend the the what like what the water ju- what the water judges cover based off um, the, it, like I said the demand um, and if they want to expand it to the entire Utah Water Code. Right now, it only focuses on two and it's the most that have litigation in front of them and um, additionally Kate Appleby does a really great job of explaining it's really not up to the judicial council to create these courts it's up to the Utah legislature so they have to believe that having water courts which Colorado has and has had since 1969 I believe and they uh, have a significantly more streamlined system that um, uh, who I also talked to a water referee in Colorado his name is John Cohen and he explains what he does on the water court. Yeah, let's roll that. All the cases are automatically assigned to me, and then I have 18 months to try to resolve the case on my docket, and uh, if I can't get it resolved in 18 months, I refer the case back to the water judge, and then it proceeds on the judge's docket like a regular civil trial would. John Cohen, one of multiple water referees, in Colorado. Yeah, he essentially acts as like a mediator over water wow. disputes. Yeah. And he says that this process has worked out super well for Colorado because similar to Utah, they don't got a ton of water, right? Like they they're all still like kind of disputing over the Colorado Colorado River and then all of the entities that go into that. But what he essentially does is tries to figure out the cases before it goes to the judge. And the really great thing about that is that he says about 90% of water disputes are solved within that 18 month time span. And when they're not, they obviously go straight to a judge. But apparently, according to Cohen, they only see about three to four cases a year. And they're really big water cases, right, that are dealing with municipality, trying to take over canal water that other people have interests in. And kind of similar problem to Utah, where it's a booming population and they need more water for subdivisions. But that's sucking dry other individuals who have access to that stream. Is there any impact or is it something to be concerned about where we see private entities buying up water rights? You know, companies, private companies that want to control water systems. We see that in many, many places. It's it's hard to tell because of this first in time, first in right. So a lot of the time, these water courts are used to essentially continue to establish priority over these water rights. So a lot of private entities do have first in time, first in right. They were at the table at the beginning of, of these discussions. So we're farmers, and that's why they're able to kind of have a really strong battle over who has jurisdiction or who has the right to carry or use this this in-stream flow, right? And, and can those be sold? Can your first first in line rights be sold? Absolutely. Like if you sell your farm or yeah. buy another farm? Mm-hmm. You can absolutely sell them. And that's part of another form of litigation, which like the change applications, it's changing the use of this water, which primarily... It depending on who you're who you're kind of ticking off, who you, whose toes you're stepping on, uh, huh. will will result in a water dispute. And Colorado has seven judges that 
preside over these cases to try and find a verdict that aligns with their law. And Utah doesn't doesn't have that yet. This this rule goes into effect November 1st. So, so. okay. So I know we only can keep you another few minutes, Sage Miller with the Salt Lake Tribune. This story that's in the paper today very much seems in line with what we were discussing earlier on the show, a solutions journalism piece. Yes. And I wonder, compared to your other reporting, tell me how this is different. Yeah, so I am actually a solutions reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. It's primarily what I do. And the really great thing about solutions journalism is we all doom scroll, right? We just like sit there and we just like read all of the bad news all day, every day. You can't take your eyes off of Twitter. And the fun thing about my job is I get to identify the problem and then also identify a solution. So specifically in the story with water lawyers, I mean, with water judges, I say, yeah, this is huge problem. We're growing. We don't have any water. There's no more. There's there's more rights than there is water. And we don't have judges that are necessarily always equipped to deal with these huge water disputes that have been going on since 1936. So they have found a solution that they can work in their realm of appointing these water judges. And there's still some concerns with it, right? Water lawyers would really like to see it expanded to the entire water code and not just focusing on the adjudication process and the change application process. You also have them wanting to have more than three judges on the bench. They want a more variety of water judges, and that's just something the Judiciary Council cannot promise right mm. now. Um, and whereas then you see a really strong model that has been successful, which is Colorado, and ha- having them establish their water courts where they resolve 90% of their their That's water amazing. disputes within 18 months so it's it's a good way to be it's a good way to kind of wrap it up of like what utah is trying to do and where utah could be it could be like getting divorced with a mediator rather than going to court and fighting over a 50 dollar ticket but but that's another story <laughs> so sage miller you're with the trib thank you for all you're doing but you're gonna jump ship Yes, uh, tomorrow was actually my last day at the Salt Lake Tribune. This is my first time announcing it. I haven't I made know, it publicly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I am going to be hopping ship back to broadcast where my roots were first at, and I'm going to be a politics reporter at KUER, the local NPR station. And so can we call that solutions journalism if you're doing politics? Absolutely. I'm not leaving the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. I'll still be there. Okay. My face will still be there. Well, good. Come back and talk some more. This is pretty exciting. I read this piece this morning when it was out, and I thought, wow, there's hope to actually, you know, we can't make more water, but maybe we can do better things with it. I really liked it. So yeah. thanks for your work. Thank you. Appreciate you reading it. It was very hard to write, but I'm We appreciate you, you sharing your audio clips from your interviews. That really <laughs> yeah, helps. Thank you. Of course. Bring those voices and their expertise into it. So, uh, Nick. So the wild party is what we're going to talk about next Uh after a break. And it just seems appropriate. It's all over now by the Rolling Stones. KRCL. The Utah Department of Health and Human Services has information and steps for parents affected by the infant formula recall and shortage, now available in 28 languages in addition to English and Spanish. Visit health.utah.gov for details. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and their Love's Diversity Initiative. Mark Miller Subaru is a proud community partner of Project Rainbow, spreading love together this Utah Pride Month. Learn more at projectrainbowutah.org or markmillersubaru.com. KRCL, your community connection since 1979. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. Coming up ahead this evening... 
on your community connection, KRCL Democracy Now! That rolls at 7 p.m. as always, weeknights with Amy Goodman. Rude Awakening, that's with Liz, 8 p.m. Maximum Distortion, Forgash and Cody D come to you at 10.30. And every weekday, John Florence gets you going with a brand new day. That's at 6 a.m., a little bit before my time in the morning, but hey, I can always be optimistic. So for the rest of the show, this is pretty exciting. Oh, founding producer of the Heart Theater Company, Emily Wells. Hi. Hi, how are you? Fine, I'm fine. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. And it's your production company, your group, and we've got a bunch of people here to introduce, but you are the fo- you are the one behind this show, The Wild Party. Yes. Yep. Okay, so very good. And Amber Hansen, hi. Hi. You're directing the production. I am. I'm directing uh, the production. Directed several musicals and just, it's such a fun show. I'm glad to be back at the helm of being the director again. Very good. I got too many pieces of paper in front of me. <laughs> Fletch Walcott, you're in the show. Yes, sir. You play Mr. Black. I am. Typecasting? I, hit, I should uh, say? Not really. It, all right. It, it was uh, kind of serendipitous that I'm here, so I'm not okay. typecasting at all. All right. And Paul McGrew, you are a co-founder with Emily. That is correct. And you're also in the show. Yes, I am. Okay. So we got we got lots to talk about here. Um, so Emily, jump in with you. Why this show and why now? I just feel like this type of a show is one that's important for us to tackle um, with this day and age. Uh, The type of material we're tackling, uh, showing that we can do it in a safe environment with people that are friendly and kind. And we're able to tackle material that's a bit uh, tough, a bit triggering, a bit um, introspective as well for audience members that are coming to see it. It's a... uh, A really interesting piece, I think. And it's also something different that we see, uh, that we don't get to see in Utah theater that we're seeing with our company. Um, uh, Just as far as the content and the material and the type of music as well. It's it's really challenging material musically and also um, in an acting perspective. And so, Amber, bring you in here. This is not Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. (laughs) Um, It's not Mary Poppins. It's not even Six. You know, the musical right. about Henry VIII. So this is a little dark. There's some violence. There's some abuse. Yeah. It's also, I want to say, gay-friendly. Um, yeah. I but mean, it's a difficult piece. It is a difficult piece. It, it deals a lot, and this is kind of my, this is, have been, has been my take with the actors, is that it deals with trauma. There's several very traumatic events that happen in the theater, surrounded in, in the show, surrounded by peppy song and dance numbers. And how do we... How do we marry those together in a really, in a really natural human way? And what I've really delved into with the actors is how, is how, what kind of trauma personality is their character, and how do they deal with trauma? There's some, there's moments where people, you know, pe- somebody becomes the hero, um, somebody just totally melts down, um, and it's kind, it's kind of fascinating that this group of people that come to this party, um, they, they're, it's like, it's like their entire lives are under a microscope. Um, and Paul has a very interesting take on his character because his, and I'll let him talk about it, but there's a, there's an LGBTQ, a lesbian character in it. Who's very out. She's very out and she's very proud. She sings about her, her goal of the night. And then we've got the brothers who 
I mean, I'd like I've loved I would love for Paul to jump in and kind of give his okay. perspective so, on his character because he's one of the what what is called described as the Lover Brothers. The Lover Brothers. Right. So that's Oscar Darmano in Oscar, the show. Oscar and Phil. I'm playing Oscar. Okay. Um, and it's kind of a little bit ambiguous. They're called brothers. They're never specifically called lovers in the script, but. In, in the like the stage directions and the character descriptions, they're referred to as lovers, and, but it's it's still kind of ambiguous. It's kind of left. Well, are they actually brothers? Are because they're they're they clearly by the way that they behave, they're intimate with each other. But I mean, there's um. But it's kind of just left ambiguous. Like, are they are they pretending to be brothers to cover up the fact that they're lovers, or are they actually in a Incestuous, incestuous relationship. Oh. <laughs> so. so needless to say, kind of a challenging piece with yeah. some dark moments, but yet you just said happy peppy musical numbers. Well, that's the thing. I wasn't <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't super familiar with the show. I was kind of thrown in to, the, to uh-huh. be the director last minute. And I re- remember listening to the music and I kind of equated it a lot to Chicago. It's got that very, you know, um, yeah, big band. We're going to have a live orchestra oh, cool. in the show. Yeah, big band f- sound and... Um, that those you know swinging swinging dance numbers. A lot of the songs are very very up tempo, it's, and it's jarring. They're so up tempo up tempo for what's going on in the show. So it's funny because the music director said, you know, I think you found some really good light moments and and the funny moments in this otherwise very dark show. I said, well, maybe it helps that I didn't really know what the show was <laughs> until <laughs> until I came in. Um, but it's 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 really interesting. I think it I think it'll be unsettling as an audience member that you will be humming along and dancing along and finding finding moments where you're connecting with these characters that are doing horrible things to each other. I mean, they're very, a lot of them are very predatory, but on the flip side of that, the humanity of, of everyone having multiple sides, you know, not everyone is all good. Not everyone is all bad. And we really explore that in every character. And and how do people cope? Right. Right. How, exactly. how, yeah. Yeah. how do people, how do people deal with trauma and the, a lot of these characters have had we, we, we can tell they've had dr- traumatic past and they have a traumatic story because of the behaviors and the way they regard each other but they <laughs> are somehow surviving in this in this world and so, yeah survivor would be the key word Emily bring you back in here the poster for the wild party includes a stemmed martini glass and again the show is based on a poem that was written back in the 1920s so I found that Martini glasses, very vintage, but also surprisingly modern. Yeah. Right. That that and and I wonder, are are you all setting this show back in the era of the poem, back in the like flapper days? Yeah, we we are. But it's you know it's funny. You'll hear within the music that one of the things that I love the most about the music, and and this is just the way that it was written uh, when it was originally off Broadway, and the way that we're doing it now with our live orchestras, that you have this big band, but you've got these modern instruments woven within the big band. So like we've got this electric guitar, and we have this electric drum kit, and different sounds and and things that you might not hear in the 1920s 
piece, but somehow have been woven into this big band sound. And so there's elements of the show where it's like, yes, the show takes place in the 1920s, but the themes of the show also reflect themes in our modern world and themes in today and the way that we are living as a society now. And that's another reason why I think this is such an important story to be telling is, you know, like uh, Amber said, we have these jarring characters, but they're not unfamiliar characters. They're characters that you see within your own life. They're, they're characters that you see within the celebrities that we idolize. They're characters that you see within your own life. And it very much reflects these different variations of people and sides that people have to them. And so I think it's such an important story to be telling in that sense. I want to ask, um, speaking of people's different sides, Emily, um, you dedicated this production to the memory of your parents. Yeah, um, and I, I'd like to say it's not just this production. It's it's the whole theater. The whole I mean, theater this, company? Okay. Yeah, this theater company is dedicated to them. Um, so my parents died in a plane crash about three years ago. It'll be three years this August, um, two days after my birthday. And uh, my parents were the number one supporter of every theater production, every show I ever did. Uh. They were always there. My mom, if she missed a show, it was very rare. <laughs> were, were you on this airplane too? I was not. Uh. No. Yeah. They, uh, it was really weird. Um, there's a lot of stuff about it that's really strange, but it happened to be a family wedding and I had asked to go, and my mom had responded with, do you really want to go to this family wedding when it's just adults invited? And I was 20, <laughs> you know, 25 at the time. I'm like, well, I'm adult. She's like, yeah, but like old adults. And I was like, I was oh. like no, I don't really want to go. And, um, yeah, it was just her and my dad, and they, you know, they had just retired the year before. They'd planned to travel the world together. My dad was a 40-year pilot, and it was wow. the love of his life, you know, and uh, – just like, you know, my mom really wanted me to follow my dreams. That was something that, you know, she had really strived for as my parent is she always wanted to be the parent that supported her child in whatever that kid wanted to do. And I'm insanely fortunate to have a parent like that. But my dad was the same way. I mean, he was a, he was born to fly, you know, so she wasn't going to let him ever quit that oh. passion and so she supported him in it and so that was their dream was to fly around the world together when they retired and just travel around and wow yeah i'm sorry for that but it's pretty amazing that you've turned that personal trauma into a theater company yeah i just you know it's theater is such a beautiful art form and i've seen the joy that it brings people and i've seen what it does for kids and i i know what it does for me and i i know the amount of empathy it's taught me towards people and other human beings and knowing the type of people that my parents were and the amount of empathy that they've both been bred into having and learned to have towards people i felt that investing in a theater company that's breeding that into other people was the best use of my time and their money and um, something that they both really supported me in. So it's, yeah, it's a really special company and it's a company that I'm hoping will change kind of the game that we have around here by both having these types of interesting uh, theater shows, but also having family friendly shows and all, all well-rounded types of shows as well as 
diversity within theater, different types of people representing different types of roles. Maybe you're not not your stereotypical Disney princess, but you just are picking the person who's the best singer and the best person for the role and is telling the story the best. Yeah. That should be who's representing people. It should be the person who's best for the role and who shows up, you know? Good point. So, Paul McGrew, you're a co-founder of this company along with Emily. You're also in the show. Yeah. So here we are talking about trauma. We're talking about showing it on stage and how it impacts us personally. And we're talking about how theater and how drama can be a way to, I think, cope with trauma. But as an actor, how, how do you or how do you think other actors sort of get into that place? I mean, I know there are many different acting styles and there's different mm -hmm. ways to look at acting. But I wonder for you, how do you evoke trauma on stage? Well, um, it's so internal. I try to do it in a safe way. Okay, um, good. <laughs> not in a, I'm not what you would call a method actor because I don't think that I can do that in a healthy psychological way. Um, um, so just to yeah. be clear, method acting yeah. would be where you would, for instance, find a trauma you in would your get own into life, that mental space. and then you would get in that space yeah. again, right? And As, yeah, I that for me personally, that doesn't. I don't find that useful for me as an actor, I focus on the character and what the, the story that I'm telling and the people that I'm telling the story with and making sure that my choices are motivated through that. And that I'm not, it's not about me when I'm acting. Okay. That's, it's about the story. Well, I mean, if you're a good yeah. actor, you should be very giving that way. Right. I mean, yeah, you but, should but be, people, you'd be surprised. Yeah, that's true <laughs> for some actors. Okay. Good point. But, but seriously, it, it's, uh, it can be all technique. You don't have to go mm -hmm. within. I can think of Laurence Olivier, who famously told Dustin Hoffman, "Why don't you just act?" Right, right. So, um, but but was this is this kind of a role when you're sort of trying to get into these I want to say darker places? Is that harder than like if it was a light comedy or you it was a Noel Coward show? Yeah, I think so. I I do have to say that my character doesn't actually really go to a very dark place. Ah, He's okay. very very flamboyant the the Dar brothers darmano are more like co comedic relief for the show and oh, okay. more upbeat they're in more their number is actually the titular number of the show the wild, oh, wild party. party okay um and it's it's more upbeat and more fun so i so for speaking from personal experience with the show i i, I don't know that i necessarily um it definitely colors my character, and that's definitely something that's part of my character work, the, my character background, but it's not something that's necessarily fully yeah. shown on stage. And you, you might ne not necessarily fully pick up on that, but okay. it definitely is something that colors my yeah. characteri characterization. So a few minutes left. Fletch Walcott, you play Mr. Black. How about yes, for sir. you to get into this role? Is it different uh, than getting into other roles you've played? Oddly enough, this is my first role. Oh, I first have, on stage. Yes, this is my first time. Um, uh, I'm How a many auditions to, to get to your first role? We should ask. A couple. Okay, a couple, couple? good ones. All right. Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, it was a lot of uh, a lot of back and forth. We did a lot of interviews o over Skype okay. and things because I'm actually from Las Vegas, so uh, they brought me in for this one. Oh, very good. Congratulations. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. He's but to incredible. answer the question, <laughs> well, everybody's so, incredible. So, I mean, but this is a song and dance show. It's a musical. Absolutely. And we're touching on dark things. Yeah. I mean, violence, abuse. And yeah. yet, as we were just saying, we've got a big band sound. Yeah. So it's like Cab Calloway with electric guitars. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, you're also dancing. 
A little bit. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. I've got some rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> but here, I mean, this is this seems like it could so potentially go to a dark place. And yeah. yet you all talking with me here this evening are so upbeat, yeah. so happy, and so engaged in putting on this really exciting show. I find that almost discongruent in a way. Well, the story does do that. Okay. It really is up and down. There's, it starts with a big bang, and then you go through life, and that's kind of what life is. It's not all you know, peaches and candy, you know. And and it's it really is a good reflection of what we're going through right now, where you know we have good times, but you know then you turn on the news and you hear something that that hurts you a little bit. So yeah. it's life. Well, and we were talking about that earlier, the water laws, and talking about the lack yeah. of water and a thousand other things. But but I think. You know, you've got this show written in the 90s based on a poem from the 1920s. After the 1920s and all the wildlife of the 1920s, we had a crash, we had a depression, then we had fascism. It, you know, oddly, I hate to say it, but it seems like we're kind of going there again. So, it's Emily, was that one of the reasons for this show? I would love to say that that is because it's true. <laughs> it is. But, you know, it, it is one of the reasons for the show is a reflection of kind of what we're going through. But at the same time, you know, you're asking about the trauma and if that impacts and how it, how it affects everybody on stage. And when you meet people in real life, everybody goes through trauma. Everybody goes through hard things. But when you meet someone, you would never know what they've been through. Right. So when you're on stage and you're acting a character who's been through a lot of stuff, you're not going to see that right off the bat, right? What What is it that everybody's using to cover all of their trauma with? What is it that everybody's showing everybody else? And I think that's a lot of the show until it unravels. Yeah. And then you see what's underneath, you know? And well, so there's this element of playing what 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 you're doing is like living in the not knowing of what, what it is, you know? I mean, that's a challenge, right, that everyone has traumas. Everybody's life is full of things that are bad. Um, but how do you cope, right? Some people drink heavily. Some people find Jesus. Some people meditate. I mean, there's a thousand different ways to cope. Exactly. Some people fall deeper into the pit, like trauma is the only thing they know. And some people climb out. So you've got a show that I hope opens that up for folks. We've only got a couple minutes left. So tell us about the show. This is going to be at the new Performing Arts Center in Taylorsville. Yeah, in it's the black gorgeous box. if oh, you cool haven't place. seen it. Mid-Valley Performing Arts Center. Thank you. Yes. And you open July 21st? Yes, correct. That's our preview night. So half off tickets for preview night. Oh, if cool. You look at. <laughs> yep, 21st is preview night. And then we start on the 22nd through the 31st. Um, almost every day, minus that Monday. And uh, most shows are at 7 p.m. I think we have three matinees at 2 p.m. So uh, Saturday matinee and two Sundays. Wow. So quite a, quite a production you're putting on. SaltLakeCountyArts.org. You can go there to check out tickets and everything. And this is at the brand new Mid-Valley Performing Arts Center in Taylorville, Taylorsville, rather, which is a pretty fantastic facility for what we could say is a rather small city like Taylorsville. So shout out to them. Amber, what's next for you after this show? Real quick. Uh, well, I'm the artistic director of the Egyptians, so okay. I'm constantly pro, you know, we do 45 shows a year, so. You're busy. 45 shows a year. All right. <laughs> yeah. And for Heart Theater, what's next for you all after this show? We just got rights for Chicago for next summer. Oh, so sorry, we are correction, Cabaret. 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 Oh my gosh, oh. I'm sorry. Don't yeah, confuse cabaret. those two. Chicago Cabaret, close. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for Cabaret, fantastic. One of yeah. my favorite shows of all times, actually. Speaking of those dark, 
dark places? Yeah. Very good. My thank you to all of you. Thank you to all the guests on the show tonight. Another fantastic hour. My pleasure to chat with all of you. And hey, if you like tonight's show, you might want to share it. You can listen on demand with the KRCL mobile app wherever you go and get an app. Or you can stream it online from Radioactive from our archive, krcl.org. Click the Community Affairs tab. Questions, comments, suggestions? Hey, send an email to radioactive at krcl.org. Tomorrow night on the show, entertainment correspondent. Oh, I like that. Autumn Thatcher reviews Like a Rolling Stone, The Life of Times, A Bing Fong Taurus. That's pretty cool. Interview with the legendary first RS Rolling Stone, rather, music editor. Friday, of course, the punk rock farmer will be back. Next up, Democracy Now! Thanks, Nick Burns. My pleasure, as always. Thanks, Laura. KRCL, Salt Lake City.